Welcome. You're listening to the Beaver Dam Baptist Church Sunday Sermon Podcast. If you would like more information about Beaver Dam Baptist Church or have questions about today's message, please visit us on the internet at www.bdbc.org. Thank you, Katie. She's sneaking out on me, but uh, thank you for singing this morning. I know that was particularly difficult because the Mason family has had two deaths uh, since Christmas, so they've had a trying uh, Christmas season, so thank you for leading us. And Mark uh, Beeler, thank you as well. Uh, Aaron and his family are out this Sunday, and so Mark, who was our interim prior to Aaron coming, is uh, leading us today. So Mark, thank you for your willingness to be here today. Uh, Over 13 years ago now, the ministerial staff of Beaver Dam Baptist Church over the course of several meetings together hashed out our mission statement for this church. That means that Scott and I are the only ministerial staff still left from those meetings. The result was a basic mission statement that was followed then by three subordinate or supporting statements, and those three supporting statements were designed to articulate how we were going to go about fulfilling our mission statement. This past year, when we set out to begin and produce the materials for our new member class, which as you've already heard, began this morning, we came to the conclusion that we had in many ways neglected that mission statement. Sure, maybe some of us could recite the basic premise. After all, it's written over the doorway as you come into the sanctuary and all the way down the hallways. Some of you didn't even know that because you haven't paid attention, but it's out there, trust me. But at the same time, even the ministerial staff, myself included, could not articulate the three supporting points that went with that mission statement. Now, I could have given you the gist of it, but I couldn't have said it word for word as we stated it all those many years ago. So as you may have noticed as well, back in the fall, we started putting those three supporting statements in our bulletin as well. Again, I already see it. Some of you are reaching for your bulletin because you never read what we print. And so now you're picking up a bulletin saying, I didn't know that was in there, and you're looking to see if I'm telling the truth. Well, I am telling the truth. It is in there and has been in there for a number of months. So as a result, we have agreed that after 13 years, it was time to reemphasize our mission statement, especially since so many of you are new to our church over the last few years, which, of course, we are very grateful for. Now, I've done multiple series through the years on the church, but those usually focus on why the church is important and, as a result, why you ought to be actively involved in a church. In fact, we've just spent the last life group semester dealing with a book on the church. But this series will be different. This series will focus on this church. Now, sometimes ministers, when they talk among themselves... Talk about what makes their church unique. That is why you should be a part of this church versus all other churches. But the truth of the matter is, 
While there are differences in churches, even within the same geographic area and even within the same denomination, the mission of the evangelical church is not unique. Our mission statement at Beaver Dam is not unique. It is simply a restatement in our own words of what we believe the Bible says is indeed our mission, our marching orders. And even though many churches have veered from those directions, they have those same marching orders. So our mission statement is merely a a restating of what we believe the Bible says is our reason for existence. And so if Beaver Dam is to be a successful church moving forward from God's standpoint, we must remain focused on the task he has given us. We must know why we exist as an organization and make sure that we continue to prioritize and emphasize those very things that keep with our purpose. So why do we exist as a church? What is it that motivates us to do the things we do? In short, what is our mission? Well, that's the question we're going to be answering over the next few weeks, that is, over all the month of January. And by the time we're done with the month of January, I do want you to know the mission statement in all of its parts. It'd be great if you could memorize it, but that's not the essential thing. The essential thing is that you know the mission statement and are actively involved in fulfilling that mission statement as a member of Beaver Dam. So we're going to start today with 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, where we find that we are going to be anchored in truth. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 through 5. Paul writes, and I, when I came to you, brothers... Did not come to you proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Now, if you do have your bulletin there, feel free to look at it. You will see the mission statement there on the inside front page, and you will notice that there is one main statement, as I've already said, And that one main statement is then supported by three other statements. Today, we are going to examine that main statement. And in the next three Sundays in January, we will deal with each of the three supporting statements that tell us how we are going to fulfill the main statement. And so you see the main statement there is this, proclaiming God's word to make and mature Believers, that is the part that is written over all of the hallways here in the sanctuary building and over the door as you come in. There are basically three parts to this main statement. We'll begin with that first word, and that first word that we are proclaiming tells us that our purpose is the proclamation of the truth. Now, we intentionally chose that word proclaim rather than the word preach. Preaching has a negative and restrictive connotation. 
It is seen by some as something I do or something a few others do in our church, but the vast majority of people in our congregation do not preach. Furthermore, it is seen as negative. You've heard people say before, don't preach to me. I don't need any more preaching. I well remember many, many years ago, someone asked me to do the funeral for a family member. They didn't go to our church, but they reached out to me through one of our members and asked me to do a funeral. And as we're sitting down talking about what they want in the funeral, they said to me, I don't want you to preach. And I didn't say it to them, but I thought to myself, then why did you ask me to do the funeral? I am a preacher. That is what I do. I'm not sure what you want me to do if you do not want me to preach. Now, we chose the word proclamation not because we're not going to preach, nor not because we don't think it's important. We do. And I'm going to talk about preaching in a few moments. But we chose the word proclamation because I want you to understand that this applies to all of us. Now, you might be quick to say that proclaiming the word is the responsibility of the church itself, not of me as an individual member of the church. But I remind you that the church is made up of her members, and the church does not exist without her members. So if it is the responsibility of the church to proclaim the word of God, then likewise it is your responsibility to do so as well. Now you might object even then and say, but I don't have the gift of teaching. To which I would respond that maybe you don't have the gift of teaching. Not everybody does. It is one among many gifts. But that does not negate the fact that you are to teach the word of God because teaching is done in many different ways. I am not confining the proclaiming of God's word to what I do on Sunday mornings in the pulpit or what your Sunday school teacher does in the classroom in just a few moments. We are to proclaim the word of God in multiple ways, but all for the glory of God. First of all, we are to proclaim the word of God by our talk. That is, we are to speak the word of God. Jesus was not just a good teacher, but he was, in fact, a great teacher. He spoke as one who had authority because he spoke the words of God. Sometimes the miracles of Jesus get more airtime, but much of his ministry was focused on preaching and teaching. He did this through parables and illustrations of everyday life. He did it through hard-hitting questions, even confrontations with those who were opposed to him. He did it in formal settings like the synagogue. When he would go from town to town, he would often go into the synagogue and read and proclaim the Old Testament. But he also did it in everyday life as he went about his day. He was very good at taking everyday things that people saw and using them for spiritual truths. Let me just give you one example. On one occasion, he saw a fig tree that was starting to bud and he called the disciples' attention to it and used it as an illustration of the signs that would indicate the culmination of the kingdom of God on this earth. He was never one to miss a, an opportunity to use everyday things to teach spiritual truth. Consider the birds of the heavens, he said, or look at the flowers in the field. And those, again, are just several examples. In doing this, Jesus was simply a living example of what God requires all of us to do. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 and 7, 
was a very, very important passage of Scripture for the ancient Israelites. And it said this, And these words which I command you today shall be in your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. We do a grave injustice to the cause of Christ when we confine proclaiming the word of God to a pulpit or a lectionary. Teaching is to take place in these formal settings, and that is indeed what I try to accomplish each week, but it's also the responsibility of every church member in our own way to proclaim the word of God to those we come in contact with in our everyday life. But not only do we proclaim the word of God with our talk, we also proclaim the word of God in our testimony. Jesus was not just a great teacher, but he backed up that teaching by the way he lived his life. In fact, one of the great dangers of the Christian life comes when we say one thing and yet we live an entirely different life. Our mouth might be spewing forth good things and things pertaining to the word of God, but our lives are making the very things we say detestable in the eyes of the people that are hearing it. And therefore, we must make certain that not only our speech, our talk, but also the way we live our lives back up what we are saying. Gandhi reportedly said, I like their Christ, I don't like their Christians. And what he meant by that was he noticed the disconnect between what they were saying about Jesus and how they were living their lives. St. Francis is widely quoted as saying, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. But in spite of that widespread reference, he never said that. Nor would he have said that because he was part of a preaching order. That is, he, he had a high importance for the preaching of the word of God. But my point is, being good news and telling good news are not two different options that we choose from. They are both our responsibility. Yes, we must speak the word. So you can't say, well, I'm telling people about God by the, way that I live our by the way I live my life. You are to do that, but you are to talk it as well. But if you're going to talk it, then you must also live it. Thirdly, I would say that we need to proclaim the word of God by our time. And by that, I'm simply talking about our consistent witness over a long period of time. In fact, by time, I'm really meaning the entirety of our lives. It is not as important to know the exact moment that you were saved. I know some people struggle with that because they can't seem to pinpoint it, but that's not what I'm talking about. But it is important that having been saved, you are proclaiming the word of God for the rest of your life. I mean, let's think for a moment about the followers of Jesus, those early disciples. Peter, James, and John, for example. They are called out by Jesus to live, to leave their life behind and to follow him, as the other disciples would be as well. Now, suppose they decide to do that, as they did, of course. But suppose Peter, James, and John hear something in the voice of Jesus or see something in the life of Jesus, and they say to themselves, I'm going to leave my life and I'm going to follow Jesus. However, six months later, they change their minds. And six months later, they go back to fishing or tax collecting or whatever it is they did. 
we wouldn't know their names today, would we? They would not have had the impact that they have had. In fact, their impact would have been minimal, if not negative, for having turned away from Christ. But let's go a little further. Let's suppose Peter, James, and John do, in fact, hear the call of Jesus, leave their life behind, and follow Jesus for three years. That's a pretty long time. But when Jesus dies, they become disgruntled, and they go back to their former life, as they briefly thought about doing. But suppose they had done that. After three years, they quit following Jesus. Again, we might know their names, and we might have heard about them, but not to the impact that they have today. We would have chalked it up to perhaps immaturity or youthful exuberance. They got excited for a while, but then they quit. And eventually they would have been forgotten to the pages of history as they go back to catching fish on the Sea of Galilee. Why is it that we know these 11 men? Because they followed Jesus for the rest of their lives. They proclaimed the word of God with their talk and with their testimony and with their time over the entirety of the rest of their lives, many of them, as you know, dying as martyrs. We've all read about someone who had a tremendous impact through their life, be it in the business world or in ministry, but then at the end, they sort of failed in some way. They turned away, and their legacy is now tarnished, and that's what we remember, the failures in the end. And the same can be true in ministry. Much of the impact that we've had through our talk and through our testimony can be negated if we do not continue that over the course of time throughout our lives. And therefore, the proclamation of the Word of God is the responsibility of every member for the entirety of our lives. One of the greatest definitions I like about discipleship is this, a long obedience in the same direction. It's not a one-year commitment. It's a lifetime responsibility. So we've talked about the proclamation of the truth. The second thing I want you to notice is the location of the truth that we intend to proclaim. You've heard that it said that there is no such thing any longer as absolute truth. Truth is just sort of wishy-washy. It's just whatever it might be in the moment for whatever the individual might wish. But that is not the testimony of Jesus. Remember our I Am series where Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. There is such thing as truth, and Jesus embodied it, and God revealed it to us. Now you say, well, Jesus is no longer physically here with us. We cannot hear him physically teach us like he did in the Sermon on the Mount. So where then do we get the truth that we are to proclaim? Well, our statement says it. We are to proclaim what? God's word. That is where the truth is found. And I know that sounds rather elementary, but you might be surprised to go from church to church and find how little of the word of God you might find there. They might give some scripture references. They may even have some posted on the door outside of their sanctuary. The pastor might read a scripture or two, a few verses here and there, but then the bulk of the message is not what the scripture says. 
but instead whatever it is he wants to communicate on that particular day. You might find very little reliance upon God's word. You say, well, what else is there to proclaim? I've often asked myself that same question. Well, we certainly could proclaim the personality or the charisma of the preacher. That is, we could build a church on my charisma. Now, the reason we don't do that is because I don't have much charisma, and I'm well aware of that. But also because it's simply not biblical. Paul, when that that charismatic preacher, he says in this text that we're looking at this morning that he didn't come in this way. You see, the problem with building a church on a charismatic pastor is when that charismatic pastor eventually leaves, and he certainly will, the church tends to suffer if not fall apart. As you know, Paul is writing in Corinth to a very troubled church. Of all of the letters Paul wrote, the church in Corinth was probably, without a doubt, the most troubled church he ever wrote to. They were experiencing a host of problems, and one of those centered on this issue. In chapter 1 and verse 12, he talks about the fact that the church is divided over the issue of which leader they are going to follow. I mean, some want to follow Paul, others want to follow Apollos, and some want to follow Cephas, which is another name for Peter. Jesus was also in the mix, gratefully. Some of them said, no, I'm going to follow no one but Jesus. And that's one reason Paul is writing what he's writing at the beginning of chapter 2 here. He says, I didn't come to Corinth to impress you with the way I talk or with the way I speak or with my charisma or my winsome ways because if I did that, it would only build a superficial following not based on true godly wisdom. And so we don't want to build a church based on my charisma or anybody else's. And so maybe we can build our church based on creativity. I mean, again, young pastors are especially good at looking looking for something that is new or creative. I mean, if we can just get the right lighting. I mean, guys, if you could just change the lighting here this morning, we might have a better response. Or if we could get the right drama or the right video clip or the right movie clip, if we could just piece that all together just perfectly, maybe people would start coming and respond to the gospel. Paul makes it very clear here that he came with weakness and fear and without the pervasive, uh, persuasive words of wisdom. Instead, he says he relied on the power of the Spirit to take his foolish and offensive message and use it to change lives. Now, that doesn't mean we can't be creative. It does not mean that we can't try new things. It simply means that we are not to build a church based on human ingenuity or personality that is not the foundation upon which we are to build. Because if we rely on those things, we end up with a church that is based on the wisdom of men. And verse 5 tells us very clearly, your faith must not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. That is what Paul wanted in Corinth, and that is what we want in Knoxville. And so how do we do that? We'll go back to verse 2 and see what he emphasized. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, you mean to tell me that every time Paul proclaimed the word of God, all he talked about was the crucifixion? No, that's not what he means. 
Paul had more than one message. In fact, if you look at Acts chapter 18 and verse 11, Paul tells us there that in his time at Corinth, he said he settled there for a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. So he didn't preach the same message for 18 months. He preached all of the Old Testament and whatever New Testament that might have been available at the time. The point is, the center of his teaching was Christ and his sacrificial death for sinners. We as a church are committed to proclaim God's word, not politics, not our opinions, not self-help strategies or other lesser things. These topics do have their place in society but it is not the purpose of the church. People ask me occasionally how difficult it is for me or how much I struggle with keeping politics out of the pulpit. And I think I surprise them when I say I don't struggle with that at all because I understand that's not my purpose. You can get that all week long on whatever cable news you listen to. You don't need that on Sunday mornings when you come here. What you need on Sunday mornings when you come here is proclaiming God's word. And that's what we try to do. So how do we go about doing that? Well, we do it in two primary ways. First of all, we do it through what is called expository preaching. That is what I attempt to do on Sundays. And in that word, expository, you see the root of that word. It is the word expose. And what that means in the context of preaching is that we take a passage of Scripture and seek to expose what it meant to its original audience and then how it applies to our own culture and our own context. That is why I tend to stay with one text. I don't go to five different texts on a Sunday morning. I've done it before, but my primary means is taking a passage of Scripture and seeking to expose what that passage of Scripture meant and now what it means to us. And if you listen carefully to sermons, it might surprise you how little exposition actually takes place. Again, you might hear some verses quoted, but that's not the same thing. It's also why you may notice that I tend to preach through it books of the Bible or at least portions of books of the Bible. So when we did the Sermon on the Mount, that's three chapters in Matthew. And so we stuck with that for quite a number of months. And the reason we do that is because we want you to get the bigger picture. We want you to see the context in which these verses are found. We don't want to pull a verse or two out of context and then preach whatever we want on those verses. We want you to see the verses in context again so that you can know what they mean and apply them to our own lives. Now, I realize that this is not the popular way to do it. It wasn't popular then. It's not popular now. In fact, look at verse 21 of chapter 1. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. I mean, even then, Paul said, I realize this is probably not the best way to go about it, at least from a human standpoint. But this is the way that God has ordained it, and through the foolishness of the message, God has seen fit to save people and sanctify people. Secondly, we do it not only through expository preaching, but we do it through effective teaching. We do this throughout the spectrum of our ministries here. It certainly plays a big part in the Sunday school classroom, 
We want our teachers to be prepared to teach God's word every week to their respective classes. If you've been going to Sunday school, you know that lately we've been going through books of the Bible. And again, that's because we want to be anchored in the word of God. We want you to know the word of God and therefore apply it to your lives. It's what we try to do on Wednesday nights. You heard all of those things that are starting back this Wednesday night. This is what uh, Mark tries to do with the children's program on Wednesday night. It's what Jake tries to do on the third floor as he's teaching middle and high school students. It's what I try to do in the fellowship hall on Wednesday nights. It's what we do in our music program, though you might th not think of it in those terms. In other words, we place an emphasis on the words we sing. We don't just sing melodies we like. We don't just sing tunes that we're accustomed to. We put, put an emphasis on the words we sing because we realize that People remember songs they sing, and in remembering those songs, we want you to be having good, sound doctrine, even in the songs that we sing, that is anchored in God's Word. Now, these two things are not an end in themselves. That is, the proclamation of the truth and the location of the truth are not ends in themselves. So look again at our statement. We proclaim God's Word to make and mature believers. Now, as you see, those last two phrases naturally break up into two elements. So here we are talking about the transformation by the truth. That is, this is the end goal. We're proclaiming the truth, and that truth is found in God's word, but we have a purpose in mind in doing that, and that is making and maturing believers, which basically breaks down into those two words that you are familiar with, evangelism and discipleship. We will talk about these two elements more in the three weeks ahead. I'm just going to introduce, to them, introduce them this morning. First of all, we intend to make disciples. Now, your first reaction to that may not be positive. You may say that's too man-centered. You know enough theology to know that we can't make anyone become a disciple of Jesus Christ. We can proclaim the word of God, but it is up to the spirit of God to work in someone's heart, drawing them unto the Father and saving them. And you would be right. And we wrestled with using that phraseology when we did this 13 years ago. However, we kept it in there because it's biblical. I call your attention to the well-known Great Commission passage in Matthew chapter 28, where Jesus said, go therefore and what? Make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. There's one command in that text. Many people think there are four. But in the original, there's only one command. It is not go. Go is not a command. Go is an assumption. As you go is the way it really could be translated. As you go, make disciples. That's the one command in the Great Commission. The other statements that come after that, baptizing and teaching, are participles that modify the one command. So the one command is to make disciples, and that's why we left it that way in our own statement. We do understand that God does the saving. We can't make anyone a disciple. However, we are called to go and to tell, and so the making of disciples is our purpose. Now, that basically means that we intend to share the gospel message with people with the intent of leading them to a saving relationship with Christ. And again, if the church 
is made up of her people. And if the church is to be involved in evangelism, you know what my next statement is. Then you are to be involved in evangelism as well. Yes, we share the gospel in large groups like this. Yes, we share the gospel in our small groups, whether that be Sunday school, life groups, or whatever group we are gathered together with. But this also means that if we are to fulfill our mission as a church, you have a part to play in sharing the gospel with others. So I want to challenge you in 2024 to share the gospel with someone. I want you to think of one person. We'll start with the basics. One person that you know is not a believer. I'm not talking about your friend that goes to another church and you're trying to convince them to come to this church. That's not our goal. I'm talking about someone you know that does not claim to be a believer. Maybe it's a coworker. Maybe it's another parent on your child's athletic team. I don't know where the setting is, but you do. And there's one person you know that's not a believer. I want to encourage you to begin praying for them and sharing the gospel with them and inviting them to come to church with you. Now, four years ago, we began a campaign called Who's Your One? You remember that? Which is just a catchier way of saying what I just said. That campaign fell apart because if you remember what happened four years ago, when I, when I introduced that Who's Your One campaign in January, we only had about a two months and a half before COVID hit and it all fell apart. So now I'm saying it's time to revive that and to find someone that is in our lives that needs Jesus Christ and intentionally go about praying for them and sharing the gospel with them when God gives you the opportunity. Now, I hope you know by now that our mission is not complete when someone makes a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. First of all, there's always more people that need to hear. But secondly, we intend to not only make believers, but we intend to lead believers to maturity. We proclaim God's word to make and mature believers. That is, we want to see every believer that's part of our fellowship growing in their relationship with Jesus Christ. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 28 says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we might present everyone mature in Christ. So we're simply copying the mission statement of the great apostle. He certainly wasn't content when someone prayed a prayer to move on to someone else. Rather, he wanted to continue to warn and to teach with wisdom so that every believer would grow and end in maturity. In fact, Colossians 1.28 could be our theme verse if we wanted one for this entire mission statement. Now, again, we'll talk about that more when we get to the supporting statements, especially about the mutual responsibility that we all have. But we as a church have a part to play, and so do you. So you won't grow to maturity unless you put forth the effort. Now, before I finish, let me say this as well. All of this must be done in love and because of love. That is, we must lovingly proclaim because we love people. If we don't love people, then we're not going to bother to proclaim the truth to them. And if we don't communicate with them in a loving way, then they're not going to hear the words that we are trying to communicate to them. So both of these must occur for our mission to be successful. We must love people and we must communicate in a loving way. 
For example, I can stand up here and I can, to the best of my ability, lovingly proclaim and try to lead people to Christ. But if someone's here for the first time and they're sitting where they are because you told them they can't sit where you always sit, you think they're going to hear what I have to say? And you know what? We laugh about that. But we got an email that basically said that over the holidays from a visitor who said people were laughing behind them, talking about how they were in their seat. Now, do you think that visitor is going to come back? No. So some of this is just as simple as being friendly on a Sunday morning, being nice to people when they come, greeting them. And if you don't know them, introduce yourself to them. They may or may not be a visitor, but, but introduce yourself to them. That shows that we love and expect people to come on a Sunday morning. General Motors has a vehicle assembly plant in Bowling Green, Kentucky. Some of you perhaps have been there. You can take a tour of that plant. Although if you want to, you better do it quickly because they're shutting down all tours the 1st of February. They're changing their manufacturing, so they're not going to have tours any longer. But regardless, for the next three weeks, you can take that tour of that General Motors plant in Bowling Green, Kentucky. You can walk in the plant. You can start at the very beginning of how they produce the car, and you can walk through the whole process until the end of that car, and then they'll have a little test drive, and then they'll pull that car out of the warehouse complete. And do you know what they pull out of that warehouse? A Corvette. That's it. You can stand there all day long, and you'll never see an SUV come out of that warehouse. You'll never see a, a four-door sedan. You'll never see a minivan. You will never see anything else but a Corvette because that is all they make. They know how to do it. They've got an assembly line to make sure it happens, and that is what they produce. Now think about that in terms of the church. If our church were a factory, what would we be producing? Or do we even know? And if we don't know, then we, can we know whether we're being successful in doing that? Well, those are the kind of things we're trying to answer over the next month. Beaver Dam Baptist Church exists to proclaim God's word to make and mature believers. I not only want you to memorize that statement, that is not the most important element. I want you to embrace it. But I also want you to be part of it. Because as a member of this church, if you are indeed one, then you have a part to play as well. So will you join me in proclaiming God's word to make and mature believers? We'll talk about how we do that over the next three weeks. Let me pray. Father, we do thank you for the mission that you've given us. Go therefore and make disciples. This is not a mission that we've invented. This is not a mission that we've conjured up in our creativity. This is a mission you gave the early disciples, and that has not changed. So may we be committed to the very thing you've called us to do. May we not be sidetracked by secondary things, but may we be focused on that which you've called the church to be and to do, and that is to proclaim your word and what that word says about salvation in Christ until you return. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn of invitation. Just a few verses earlier from what we looked at uh, this morning. 
1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 18, Paul says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You are dismissed.